Hello, this is Mike from Dark Days Radio, and joining me is David. You're listening to A Secret Frequency on Divination. Tonight you will be regaled with stories, facts, and uh, lore about divination, and treated to a plethora of ideas for your horror games. And a special thanks to David for coming up with this. Um, and we'll get into that in a second. Uh, this episode is going to include content dealing with real-world cultures and beliefs, so uh, we're going to focus on uh, how to use these ideas in a meaningful and respectful manner, not just for cheap thrills. And uh, David, you are, of course, the uh, one of the main writers on An Eye to the Void, which is a, uh, a new source book on Kickstarter, which is system agnostic and meant to be used for divination in role-playing games. Do you want to give everyone just like a quick 30-second rundown on that? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I've not been here for a while, but it's nice to be back. But yeah, I have written a book called Eye to the Void. It is a system agnostic book for using real-world historical folklore and, and religious ideas of divination and how we can use them to inspire our tabletop RPGs. So, as we say, it's a system agnostic book. It's not got mechanics, like hardcore mechanics in it it's like how can we use these to build really interesting stories and how can we take the ideas from real world and bring them into our rpgs and then run with these ideas and use them as inspiration without actually doing what some of the games have done in the past with certain cultures and beliefs and treat them respectfully but yeah it's it's currently live on kickstarter it's doing quite well uh, and we've got some cool things coming up in the next couple of stretch goals. So that that remains to be seen yet. We'll have to do a little bit more divination for that. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can check out the Kickstarter. And the way we're going to be treating this episode is a little bit different than a standard secret frequency. It's going to be kind of a, a mix between a secret frequency and just kind of a standard Darker Days episode, wherein uh, David's going to talk about the, uh, the real-world ideas behind different divination techniques, uh, and then I'll follow it up with some examples of how this has appeared in tabletop RPGs in the past, and also uh, just some ideas for how you can portray it in uh, different RPGs. So this is going to be uh, different than, than uh, An Eye to the Void, wherein that one has a lot more ideas for scenes and general tips for storytellers for mm. how to use these mm. in games, uh, as opposed to my wackadoodle ideas here where uh, I, I've actually got some ideas for actual mechanics for some of them, which are totally unplay-tested. I just came up with them this morning, but uh, they could be pretty fun and something to uh, trigger some ideas for your own games. Yep, that, that, that's what the book's for. That's what it's there for. It's there for to, to trigger the ideas that you can run with. So, Absolutely, absolutely. So, David, do you want to start off with uh, tarot first? Yeah, um, so tarot. Uh, everyone knows what tarot is. They've, they've, they've heard the name. Everyone knows it. It's it's a deck of cards that can be used to talk about your, your past, your present, and your future, depending upon the way the cards are drawn. So we all know what tarot is, but within Eye to the Void, we kind of talk about a little bit of the history of it um, briefly. So... Tarot is what is known as a form of cartomancy. Cartomancy is a divination technique using cards, using playing cards. And so tarot is the, obviously the most famous one, and it's it comes from actual playing cards. And back in the days when it was invented, it was in a way a kind of game. So it comes from Italy in the, the, the mid 15th century, so around 1440, 1450-ish, is when it is born in Italy. Um, and it's a deck of 78 cards nowadays, and there are kind of a couple of different decks that are used, so the most commonly used ones, you, you get 78 cards where you have the Major Arcana, which are 22 cards, which are named and numbered. You have the things like the Fool, the Hanged Man, Death, etc., etc. So commonly known names of these things. And they all have specific meanings. And if you just play with the Major Arcana and you draw three cards, you get your past, present, and future draw. So you'll get the Fool coming out and saying that this, your past was a little bit like this. Then you'll get your present, maybe you'll draw Death, and that'll be Change. And then maybe you'll draw the Hanged Man, and well, then you're a bit fucked. 
and that's that's one part of it. The 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 rest of the cards, the rest of the fifty six cards are your minor arcana. These are your fifty six cards that you get from a normal playing deck. These are broken down into four suits, which are sometimes related to elements, sometimes are not related to elements. And there's a whole plethora of things about th that. But again, each card represents a specific meaning. You get like ten of clubs or ten of swords and things like that. So that's that's the basic makeup of a tarot deck. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing is that um, compared to a regular playing card deck that everyone's familiar with, mm. the court cards, you know, you have basically the king, the queen, the knight, and then there's also the page. So there's an extra one of those uh, face cards in there as well for the yes, minor arcana. Is, yeah. yeah, yeah, there is. Um, but it also kind of depends on which deck you look at as to kind of how it's built. Sure. So... Um, there are three main tarot decks that use 78 cards. So the original tarot deck, which is the Tarot de Marseille, um, which is the Marseille deck, it comes from Marseille, France, from about the end of the 15th, beginning of the 16th century. And that's where we get a lot of these names from. But also they all kind of change and morph throughout history as other cultures and other beliefs kind of get attached to it. And then within the late 19th century, we get the, I forget the name of it specifically. We were doing something on this a couple of days ago. Are you talking about the, uh, are you thinking of the Rider Waite deck? That's really a famous that's one. That's the one, the Rider Waite deck, yes. Yeah. That's, that's kind of like the main deck that exists now. Right. Um, they come from that, and that's where we got 70, 78 cards from there. We also then have the Oracle decks. These are not technically tarot decks in that traditional sense and they have a different number of cards and they can kind of have any images upon them but they are very much a form of cartomancy where you have cards that have very specific meanings on them um, but the, the, the Thoth deck is probably the most recent development that is widely used and it has kind of connections to numerology and the Kabbalah whereas the um, the Rider White deck and the, the Tarot de Marseille are a little bit more esoteric in their related to Christian ideas, I suppose, is the way to talk about it. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so it, it's, it's what everybody knows. It's, it's a thing that everybody knows. It's been used for hundreds of years um, and it's, it, it's worked its way into modern culture in all manner of, manner of ways. So that's kind of what Tarot is, I suppose. Um, you've got your three card draw, which is the most famous one, and then there are different methods depending upon what you're trying to do. Like the Thoth deck, I know has, I've got one sat next to me, um, it has quite a few different and more complex ways of drawing cards and laying them out, so it depends on whether the card is face up, face down, whether the, the I suppose the head of whatever it is being shown is at the top or the bottom. Um, in what orientation it lies next to other cards and things so you get this kind of grand scheme of how the cards lay together to what is actually being told to you through these cards um and that's it that's that's kind of it um mm -hmm. it was originally built as a game i suppose um and it kind of went through a very large up uh, rapid increase in popularity during the 19th century and is now quite popular and I think it's kind of gone past the whole connection to paganism and is now kind of just part of popular culture. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You see it around quite a bit. So let's talk about uh, the uh, tarot deck used in um, tabletop RPGs because there's many, many games that use there are many. decks just like this. You know, pretty famously, uh, Warhammer 40,000 has the uh, Emperor's uh, tarot deck, which is originally featured in the old uh, uh, Draco trilogy by Ian Watson, but it started to show up elsewhere, like the Dark Heresy uh, RPG books. Yep. And supposedly yep. the cards um, in this are linked to the, uh, the Corpse Emperor back on Terra on his Golden Throne, and he influences the readings, particularly when performed by a sanctioned Psyker. Um, yeah. So that's a cool little piece of lore, and actually a great character concept uh, that you could use. The cars themselves, are, uh, within 40k and the modern setting, they are psycho, psych, psychoactive cards. So um, they are 
very, very much connected to the person dealing with them. And we do see them now, like one of the first episodes within Hammer and... What is it? The the, the TV? Hammer and, Hammer and Bolter. Hammer and Bolter, in one of the first episodes there, uh, there's an Inquisitor who goes off and meets people and each time he gets a deal a dealing of the Empress Tarot, um, you see the cards and they're they're quite visual and three D. Um Games Workshop have just released something, I think yesterday. Um arcs and something. I remember one community content where it was something to do with the Empress Tarot, so mm. it's quite it's quite a really nice, really nice cool thing that they've done. Um but then as I was talking with uh Terry a couple of days ago from the Mage podcast, there's the um, opposite side of the Empress Tarot, um, the anti-Tarot, the anti-Empress Tarot, which is a uh, yeah. Don't mess with that because you'll end up in the warp and your head will melt. <laughs> yeah, definitely a, a danger in the Warhammer Forty Thousand setting. In addition yeah. to that, uh, there's other games that have um, uh, tarot decks made for them. For example, Mage the Awakening and Mage the Ascension feature physical uh, tarot deck products as well. Uh, Mage the Awakening goes even further because it details uh, an entire source book, uh, Keys to the Supernal Tarot, uh, which has explanations for how that tarot can be used in games, how it can be interpreted, and uh, just a lot of influence for how you could use um, that deck in Mage the Awakening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, much like the, uh, the Emperor's uh, Tarot that we just talked about, um, this deck varies with its own Major Arcana, uh, which are different than, say, the Rider Weight uh, deck that we were talking about before. Yeah, maybe like a brilliant game to use it in because it has it has all those connections to to I suppose real world magic in a way like the, it has that because it's that world of darkness setting or the chronicles of darkness setting it connects to our real world so we, it was quite easy to bring bring in the tarot and the ideas in from it into into mage. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And Dungeons & Dragons Ravenloft campaign setting has its own uh, tarot deck, which is the Taroka, um, used by, primarily, originally used by the uh, Vistani, but clearly it's uh, it's it's uh, been expanded in the 5th uh, edition setting as well. Uh, and we'll talk about the uh, uh, Taroka later on when we get into uh, game mechanics and the like. And I see, uh, David, here that you, uh, you highlighted another game that has uh, a tarot deck created for it. Yeah, so there's there's a couple of other games that exist that specifically use tarot. So obviously we've got this being Dark Days Radio, we like horror. There's Cult, Cult, Divinity Lost has I think it's a 56 deck card um, deck of cards, which they call a tarot deck, um, and it's used not kind. It's not a specific tarot deck, but it's a, a deck of cards that you can use to kind of help throw out locations and 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 effects that go on during the game um, that looks quite cool that I need to kind of have a look at, look at more and then there are two games that I'm aware of that specifically use traditional tarot decks as a mechanic within the way the game is played. I don't know much about them, um, I do need to look into them a little bit more but we've got something called Divin- Divination RPG um, where the tarot deck is the key mechanic into how the game is played and then there's another kind of really cute little game that's just come up onto kickstarter called codico a magical year again the tarot deck is the the core mechanic rather than using dice it uses the tarot deck and there are other games out there which use like cards and things rather than the dice mechanics and stuff so yeah yeah um Back in the uh, the early 2000s, there was the Engel RPG, which White Wolf yeah. actually translated uh, from German, but they only carried over uh, one of the uh, the core game mechanics, which was the D20 system. But in the German mm-hmm. version, it supposedly has a, uh, a, a, a game mechanics where you use tarot cards for it, which is mm-hmm. very cool. Um, I think the German version is available on Drive RPG as a PDF, so like maybe I'll buy it sometime and try to translate it. You know, see if I can uh, figure out what those game mechanics are. I should probably try and learn some German living here and uh, attempt to do that myself. I <laughs> don't think I'm going to be yep. here long enough to get that level of German, but we'll see. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, and then like uh, Shadowrun had its own uh, tarot deck and a yep. book associated, which was the uh, Book of the Lost, I think. I, I actually have a copy, but I haven't read it. Um, but that's just another neat little thing for um, cyberpunk gaming, fantasy cyberpunk gaming. Yeah. But let's talk about game mechanics a little bit and dive into this. So 
The tarot is a really interesting and spicy way to randomize your games and provide some really dramatic scenes. Um, so most famously, uh, with card randomization, there was Advanced Dungeons & Dragons I-6 Castle Ravenloft module, which at one point has the characters meet a fortune teller who tells them their fate in the adventure, drawing cards to represent events, backstory, and item locations relevant to that game. The original module uh, recommends just using plain playing cards, but uh, later versions allow for the uh, Taroka deck, just that kind of custom Ravenloft one, or if you really wanted to, you could even use tarot cards themselves for the uh, for the drawing, which is actually what I did when I ran uh, Castle Ravenloft, like, geez, five years ago or something. Although humorously, during that really dramatic, tense scene, spooky scene, uh, one of my roommates walked in to uh, make some toast. So uh, that kind of that kind of ruined the mood. But uh, yeah, um, for your own games, uh, this kind of card randomization can provide really great inspiration uh, during a fortune-telling scene. So rather than writing out what every card does, pick like three to four key events that uh, tarot cards should represent. So for example, um, maybe you want to determine potential allies for the players. So you randomly draw from the deck of major arcana and court cards uh, from each suit. You could probably leave the minor arcana just like one through ten of cups off to the side for this one. Um, and when drawing the Fool, the Empress, or King of Cups, that's a pretty straightforward and easy inspiration for the future. While cards like the Wheel of Fortune or the Hanged Man might uh, you know, kind of seed some dire scenes into the future. And these are ideas that you could play with and work with in the game. You know, alternatively, there are just a lot of books out there that explain the meaning of individual uh, tarot cards and what like the art on them represents. So maybe during a one-shot game, you could agree to all draw a tarot card for each character at the beginning, and this could dictate maybe their past fate, um, or, or you know, future fate, or their personality, for example, as a way to uh, you know just kind of bring some extra influence in uh, from the tarot deck, and, and just have like a fun randomization of of what the character might be like, just to change it every time. Yeah, that's a really good like that whole randomization like. Um, of just like this is for this scene maybe this is something that your character is is, is drawn to or is concentrated upon um, one of the possible stretch goals that we are talking about at the moment um, is, is an actual specific tool for using um, a traditional tarot deck in within your RPGs and we're kind of throwing around ideas as to kind of what we should do and that's actually a really, really nice, interesting way to think about it. It's like, rather than actually using it as a specific divination idea, go, yes, I've drawn this card, so therefore this is the meaning and this is what the divination is, is you walk into the room, the diviner looks at you, and you then you suddenly see this card has been drawn for you, and you, you start to feel the effects of that card upon yourself. It's not an actual true divination in the way that this is what's going to happen in your life and this is the story that the, the game is going to take but, but maybe for the next few scenes you have this overbearing feeling of whatever the card was showing you yeah it's a great idea so david we kind of eased people in with tarot decks people are really familiar with them from movies tv all that kind of stuff fiction yep. now let's go for a really zesty one let's talk about geomancy take it away Geomancy is not throwing stones at people. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> you should you should tell the people that made Final Fantasy Tactics that, <laughs> or just just any anything that thinks it needs to use an earth uh, earth based magic. Everyone goes, oh, it's geomancy. It's like yeah, yeah, geomancy. Yeah, let's throw rocks at people. Yeah, that's that's not what geomancy is. So there was this concept. Um, before I get into kind of what geomancy is, let, let's talk about a little bit of darkness. Um, in the 16th, 17th century, um, I've probably got the dates slightly wrong here, it might be slightly earlier, might be slightly later, there was what is known as the Seven Forbidden Arts um, that the church were like, yeah, no, these are really bad, you shouldn't mess with these. Um, geomancy was one of them. And it sat alongside hydromancy, so water divination, aeromancy, 
air divination, pyromancy, fire divination, chiromancy, which we now call palmistry, and scapulomancy, which is... Um, I'm not going to tell you what that is. If you want to know what that is, go go back to the Kickstarter because we go into detail on what that is. <laughs> and then the last one is necromancy. Um, and I think we're going to talk about necromancy later, so I won't go into what that is. Uh, geomancy is one of these forbidden arts, and it is divination through using the earth. So there are multiple, multiple different ways that this can happen. But the most common one, and it's kind of having a little bit of a revival. It had a, a like tarot had a bit of a revival in the 19th century. We can thank the Victorians for this. They had a massive increase in uh, interest in folklore and old stories and things. And Victorian folklorists did did actually some good work of re, re-inspiring people to to look at these things. So, but geomancy as an art, the the more specific idea that what it is is something related to squares and shapes um, and geomantic patterns and how they work. It's kind of complicated and kind of long-winded, yeah. but basically, you you random you kind of enter into a ritual state and you randomly draw squares and then you randomly put sixteen dots within these squares, and the the, the position of the squares and the position of the dots within the squares represents certain levels and certain ideas, kind of in a way like you get with a tarot deck where you've got your different suits and you've got your different connections between the suits and the numbers and the different those kind of ideas you have the same thing within the the squares um you've got the mother you've got the daughter there's a judge and it, there's different levels of kind of how these things connect to each other depending upon the number of dots within them and these geomantic squares are quite interesting patterns when you actually look at them so it's quite a in a way it's kind of a mathematical weird form of divination and that's when you talk to people who do divination that's what when you say geomancy that's what they think of there is also many 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 forms within geomancy that are not that so there's casting of of earth there's casting of salt there's looking at cracks within rocks and the patterns within those um if we go over to asia you can um the i ching and feng shui are also considered forms of geomancy because they relate to patterns within nature so in a way you can kind of consider geomancy along with these geomantic squares they are the geomantic squares are generally drawn within dirt and dust or sand and things it is patterns seen within rocks and nat- within I, I want to say nature but it's not nature it's kind of like that more physical rock solid sand dirt kind of idea not just plants and stuff plants and things are something else so that's what geomancy really is and uh yeah it's quite a large topic <laughs> It, it is, and it really made my head spin trying to research it for this. Oh, God, it, like when I was writing the little bit that we've got in the book, I was like, okay, I need to describe what geomancy is and geomantic squares are. How am I going to put a seven-page description of these things into, like, yeah. one and a half paragraphs? It's, you it's need, insane. You need a lot of figures, I think, and that's why it's going to be very hard for us to discuss this. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, in the context of an audio podcast, but we're going to try our best. So, uh, examples in tabletop RPGs of geomancy, none that I know of, none that are are accurate to... Um, none, uh, none that scream out at me, no. Yeah, there's a lot of throwing rocks at people, but uh, not, yeah. not actual real geomancy. So, how are you going to use this mechanically in a game? Um, I got some ideas here. So... I think the easiest thing to gamify about this would be the uh, geomantic squares or geomantic figures. And typically you're going to have, I've seen some images and there's all different shapes, all different ways that these can be set Mm -hmm. up, but I've seen some that are quite simple. They're basically a four square by four square structure, right? It's a square that's broken up basically into 16 individual square elements. and those can have like individual numberings associated with them. Mm-hmm. So 
I was thinking, all right, we have 16 numbers, 16 squares, 16 numbers. Well, there's a lot of RPGs out there that revolve around a 20-sided die. You know, 5th edition, Palladium, that that new Monty Python game. So you could Sorry, have... Uh, <laughs> no, it's all right. It was meant to be a joke. Um, the game is a joke. The uh, So you could have... You can have a character who reads geomantic patterns to gain story and setting insight or to provide additional abilities. So in the context of this D20 system, uh, the character might have a separate four square by four square sheet, kind of like a bingo board, essentially, uh, with numbers, let's say, four through 19 filled in. So when a character rolls a number on the sheet with their D20, they could mark it off. Right, so they could. Let's say you rolled an eleven. You can mark off that uh, eleven square on your sheet, and when certain patterns emerge that match, uh, a, you know, one of the sixteen geomatic geomantic uh, figures that exist, there's actual specific patterns. One looks like a Y, another's an inverse Y. You've got just a straight line. You've got double straight lines, and yep. uh, some other kind of. Uh, there's one that's kind of like Sh and, and Cyrillic that I saw. Um, so there's a bunch of different patterns and when you get your essentially bingo board to match that you can then use an effect clear that board use an effect associated with that particular geomantic shape and and basically activate it and this can be something where the dungeon master or storyteller has to tell you the truth it could be a uh, a truth that you create through your own player agency right you're you're, you're yep. declaring some sort of fate to the game or maybe it could be something as simple as just like spell bonuses, that sort of thing, uh, you know, for the more combat-focused games. That's kind of, that's really cool, because that, that, that brings in then not just the idea of the geomantic squares, but you can also then bring in ideas of numerology. And if you, you fill in that square in specific way, it, it like randomize the numbers within that, and then you manage to make that geomantic shape or figure, and you're connecting the correct numbers that relate to maybe a specific god within the world that you're playing in you then get extra bonuses or if you kind of slightly naff it up a little bit and you've connected the wrong numbers together in the wrong shape you end up connecting to maybe not the correct god but you don't know that and something bad happens so you can kind of bring in some really fun ideas with numerology as well yeah absolutely absolutely and uh to make this a little bit zestier because you know the way they had this kind of written up it's really just bonuses it's just extra abilities that sort of thing yeah in the context of a d20 system what if each number that you filled in could not be a success anymore you know you rolled that 11 you put it on your sheet now anytime you roll an 11 it's a failure even if it would normally be some sort of a success so that kind of ups Ooh. the ante for your character Ooh. and you don't want to just fill out a sheet completely now of course when you clear the board and get one of those bonus effects you get all of your die results back at that point mm. but i think that might be a, a good way to um kind of balance things out it also builds up that kind of the tension of, of you reaching the climax of the the power of either the divination or the magic that you're trying to do with this because you know you're almost there but the risk of getting that final number is exponential because you've now got like you have to hit that specific number because if you hit something else things are going to go wrong I like that that's that, that's, mm -hmm. that's certainly up as you say ups the ante a lot yeah yeah exactly now in the context of say the world of darkness which is a dice pool game this is a bit tougher to do right you know your dice mm -hmm. you know you have a limited dice pool it might only go to um let's say you know it goes from one to ten on a single die but i actually just had an idea as you were talking and dice trays are very popular and what is geomancy in some cases but throwing rocks to see what the pattern is so let's put this this bingo board not just not just geomancy but any form of casting like casting the runes and, and and casting of lots and things like that yeah indeed so let's just throw a dice into a um a dice tray which has that kind of bingo board inside of it and if it comes out that your dice form a particular geomantic shape boom extra effect that could occur and you know in the context of a uh, a a uh, dice pool game that's not going to be very common right you know you have the randomness of how you roll but in addition to that some of these shapes require 
at least four dice. Other require others mm. require eight, like the the double two lines of four. Yeah. Um. So that would be very very uncommon to have, and would require at least a dice pool of eight. So I think that would be a very interesting way to spice things up. Although I am of course afraid that it could slow the game down as everyone's looking like, does this match one of the shapes? Um. So. It could be interesting. Could use some playtesting, but uh, that's another way that you could it's use definitely geomancy. an interesting idea. Because um, we do also do a lot. We do talk in the book about casting and stuff, and and the shapes and and how they fall, how how the pieces that you are using in the casting fall. And this brings in an actual physical mechanic to it. So if you have a geomantic board of of, of numbers laid out, or a or some some other kind of board that has shapes on it so you can look at spirit boards or something you can even create your own thing as as the dm or the gm or the storyteller you have a lot of control over it so if you roll if if the dice are rolled and you it, it forms a pattern on there the, the the storyteller can go ah yes i can see this shape within it so therefore this is the story that is being told from from what you You've, you've cast then kind of removes the idea of like does this actually match or not let the storyteller kind of play with the story of it rather than is this specific if you design a, a system that is very very specific and it has to match all the, those sets very very clearly yeah I can see how you can kind of end up in those arguments but give the power to the story rather than to the specifics of the pattern I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Great advice. Great advice. All right, David, should we move on to the next topic? Yes, the next topic. I think we can put a little bit of a, a, a content trigger warning onto it. <laughs> animals, animals. Um, we're going to talk about two specific parts of animal divination here, um, and this is animal sacrifice. So. If you're a little bit squeamish and don't particularly like hurting animals, probably this is not the best part for you. Um, and we do put comments in, in, in the book that we've written about, please, please check these things. But so animal sacrifice is, or was, I should say, a form of um, divination that was quite popular in ancient times, in Mesopotamia, and some of the oldest forms that we know of. Um, come from Babylonia and Mesopotamia and like 2,500 years ago there are not 2,500 years ago 2,500 BCE there are um, reports and knowledge of animal sacrifice being used as divination that far, that far ago so 5,000 years ago we know that this happened and it has a name called Horuspex Horuspex um, unsure of the actual pronunciation but it's basically you sacrifice an animal and then you use its entrails and its guts to predict the future. Uh, the 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 you get you get I'm trying to think of words here now my brain's gone blank. Um, you get ideas from the the heart and the liver and their conditions of them, whether they're fresh and clean and still beating that shows a good omen if they're rotten and twisted and torn up that's a bad omen within roman and greek times so the ancient roman ancient greece cultures they would quite regularly sacrifice animals before a battle to know whether the gods were favoring them um but there was um a point that within i know within roman society where the sacrifice of animals was not always seen as a strong enough connection to the divine to give you a good answer. Um, so they developed what we call anthropomancy. And they went to the next level of animal sacrifice. They, they started to sacrifice humans and they used human sacrifice as a form of divination. We also see this within Mesoamerica. Uh, The Aztecs and the the Incas did do a form of this as well, um, where you would sacrifice either willing victims or criminals and and use their organs to 
speak to the gods and find out uh, either the, the futures or whether the gods were smiling kindly on the choices that you were making. So, yes, lots of blood and guts, basically. <laughs> and, and, Indeed. Indeed, yeah. And how to use this safely in games? You know, uh, Dave, you just mentioned, you know, checking with players about uh, if harmed animals is a trigger, you know, before the game or before the session, for example. Uh, that could be a good way to avoid anything. I do like the next when you were in here. <laughs> I do like this. Indeed. I would not uh, recommend using real entrails in your game. Um, if you need a real physical prop for, for a game, uh, maybe just use spaghetti and tomato sauce. You know, yeah, get a yeah. thick spaghetti. It'll probably work. Yeah, we, we do not support anyone going out at all and finding their own animals and performing this for real this is that that's not a good thing uh, please don't do that <laughs> indeed I, I mean someone who is really dedicated could go to a butcher and and, and get some get a prop but uh, yeah your players uh, might not like that yeah. uh, let's let's not do that yeah. so how to use this in games uh this is a uh this is a a challenging one to gamify um mm. you know uh our our good friend Chris really likes the cult of Mithras in his uh, vampire Manchester setting. Uh, and we do too. Yep. So uh, Haruspects and uh, Anthropomancy are, are pretty good for portraying that cult itself. Um, you know, as mentioned, you know, Mithras was a, uh, you know, a deity that uh, Romans, for example, worshipped. Um, there was, and there was even within the, the, the traditional idea of Mithras, you've got the, the weird bowl that they would put people inside and uh mm. you can kind of connect that i suppose but anyway carry on so yes no no there's there's a lot of interesting stuff with uh with mithras and mithraic cults um and of course yeah there, there is evidence that some of the roman soldiers did bring their practices up to uh up to the british isles when they were there there is so, i, I discovered ah this is this talking about mithras this is quite interesting i discovered cool. that there is a mithras temple in the town that i now live in in germany in heidelberg there's an actual temple to Mithras here, um, which I didn't know until a couple of weeks ago. David, if you keep if you keep showing up to places with the remnants of Mithraic cults, I think we're going to start getting a little worried here. So I didn't do anything. I, I've not lived in two places that have Mithraic cults in them at all. It's got nothing to do with me. I don't know what you're at talking least about. Two. At least two. All right, but anyway, so we're talking about vampire and uh, you know animal sacrifice or or the sacrifice of living beings so in a more sandbox vampire game each night of the game could start with a scene of sacrifice so the cult would gather around the uh, mithraeum and uh play out the sacrifice itself and roles actions and of course the uh the victims randomly determined blood resonance in vampire fifth edition could determine uh some of the uh events for the night um so, you know, gamifying that, I, I would prefer to keep it random as to what the resonance of the victim is, but mm -hmm. potentially, yes, someone could go out and sample and kind of get a feel for the resonance and say, oh, this would be good to enhance our our uh, uh, social ploys for the next night, for example, um, if you wanted to do it that way. Uh, human sacrifice, of course, would come up a lot in games like uh, Demon of the Fallen, Cult, Dark Ages Fey and maybe a Hunter the Vigil game focused on slashers quite a bit. I think Dark Ages Fey uh, would be particularly interesting because as written, it's the only way that the Fey really interact with humans is through um, through through contracts and pacts with the otherworldly Fey. Adding in this additional human sacrifice, you probably have to add some sort of a mechanic if if your players are okay with it. Um, or this could be for a uh, more more dreadful, say, winter fay in that setting. Um, that could add another reason for the fay to leave the mists and interact with humans, uh, which is something that is is sorely needed in that game, in my opinion. There's also obviously the obvious connection with Warhammer 40,000 where thousands of psychers are sacrificed every day to the god emperor of mankind um, so you're seeing human mm -hmm. sacrifice on a galactic yeah. scale there but you've also got the rights of Zinch who would quite happily sacrifice people to to weave the way of, ways of fate um, to, to so he can create his multiple paths of the future 
so there is there's that um i think you, you've got mm. quite strong connections with animal and human sacrifice within warhammer 40k you can obviously then translate that into age of sigmar and fantasy as well with zinch and things so yeah zinch that's an interesting one uh Dave, that you just brought up because as you know the changer of ways it's usually his schemes that are being enacted he's not physically going out and nor are his cultists like let's say hacking a person apart so it would have to come down to their schemes to indirectly sacrifice someone which i think could be uh, uh, an interesting basis for an antagonist yeah creating some kind of weird backstory where the 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 leader of the town needs to be sacrificed in a specific way for a certain weave of fate that the changer of ways wants to happen but it can only happen because if this person is sacrificed in a specific way, but they obviously can't get involved with it, so they need to create the town in that kind of way. And you get all that kind of background politics and weird weirdness that you end up with, Zinch. Um, you've got the obvious idea with corn that, yeah, sacrifice, blood god, um, chop people's heads off, skulls for the skull throne and all that kind of stuff as well, um, on a more less subtle way, I suppose. Um, yeah, yeah. Certainly, yeah, certainly, the Warhammer universes have a lot that you can play with in that. So, definitely, and of course, animal sacrifice could be a great theme in a fantasy role-playing game that has many fantastical creatures, such as RuneQuest, Talislanta, Dungeons and Dragons, of course, but even Mage the Ascension with the uh, the bygone beastry. So, divination may require that the characters hunt down rare and obscure uh, creatures. Um, and this could allow you to highlight some of the less seen fauna of those settings or take the uh, character or characters to a really off the beaten path to a place they wouldn't normally go. Um, and this divination might require some butchering or possibly ingesting parts of the beast as part of a vision quest. Within the worlds that we play in, like especially within fantasy settings, there are so many different creatures that exist within these that do they all have specific connections to divine powers and do they do they need to be treated in a specific way so we see within just normal divination that animal specific animals have specific connections to to the ways that work so you've got the white stag is very much a christian image of goodness and this is where things should lead and it, that crosses over to asian culture where the white stag is one of the founding stories of japan but then you've got the opposite where you've got a black stag and there was a black stag shot by the police in uh, the UK a couple of years ago, and then when we ended up in where the world is now. So you can draw connections if you want to. Um, so depending on the, the type of animal that is, and if you're in a fantasy world, there's so many different animals that you can bring in and doing them in different ways, treating them in different ways and eating different parts of them or doing different things. You can have a lot of fun exploring these ideas. Yeah, indeed, and uh, that's a good point that you could also kind of take this the opposite direction where your characters may be trying to preserve mm. certain uh, fauna uh, yep. and, and preventing their sacrifice. So that could be uh, that could be really interesting. Yep, definitely. Um, so one of the things uh, we've got, going on to a few honorable mentions in a minute, but one of the things that we've tried to do with the book is because it is... Obviously, we've got a limited space within the book, and we've tried to cover as many things as we as we can. We've not given specific, like we've just talked about here, like specific mechanics. We've talked about ways that you can kind of grow the worlds themselves and use these divination ideas to kind of add depth to the storytelling. Um, but adding all these little things in that we've talked about here is just adds adds. Um, icing to the top of the cake I suppose it creates these wonderful deep ideas um, and yeah we go into a lot more detail in other things and there's a lot of other parts of animal divination that is not murdering animals so uh, it's, it's been quite good fun looking into it let's let's talk about some honorable mentions that we can't really go into detail on yeah sure 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 so uh, the book does talk about runes, and yes. since we talked about uh, you know tarot decks, didn't think we really needed to talk about casting too much. Mm -hmm. But uh, one interesting thing that you brought up in there was just like, oh, you can make up your own yep. runic alphabet if you want to use that. Great idea. 
and it actually got me thinking that the uh, the D and D Fifth uh, Edition Player's Handbook actually has the Dwarven Runic Alphabet in it, uh, yep. which is uh, would be very easy to just port over and use. Um, you can just you know make some little tokens, like some MDF tokens or something, paint on the little symbols, and boom, there you go. You can uh, kind of create your own system with that. Very much so. You can, if you really want to get involved, go out, get a branch, cut the branch up into a couple of little circles, and, and paint it onto some some wood. Um, within runic divination the type of wood that you carve the runes in is quite important even though runes technically is an alphabet and it was used as a form of portraying a message it is also connected to to magic so if you carve it onto the stone the type of stone you do it onto the type of wood you do it onto you you can bring all these wonderful ideas into your own game so you're like oh yes i've got this bag of of oak wood dwarven runes or these these obsidian dwarven runes where the dwarves have gone down deep 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 below the earth and they've hacked out these from this really small vein of of obsidian that was existing in this hard rock that was took many many centuries to to mine and kind of going that kind of idea of creating this this actual alphabet for them to use as divinations. Adding that kind of extra layer behind them. Yeah, we just went out and got some rock and carved into the alphabets to it. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely a good idea. Definitely cool. And uh, David, I know you really want to talk about the next one, so I think I'm, I'm done with my honorable mentions. Let me get out the soapbox here and uh, I'll let you stand on it. <laughs> dead people. I see dead people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, Necromancy. It's it's it, the the fun and games that is necromancy. So in in what most people think of necromancy is uh, all those memes that you see out there. I'm going to bring my axe. I'm going to bring my sword. Necromancy comes up. I'm going to bring your brother. It's raising the dead um, is what you see in most games as to what necromancy is. That as a in in divination is a very small part of what necromancy is. Necromancy is actually summoning spirits or entities uh, for, a, for a bit of a bedside chat, really. Um, I've now got this image of just people sat around a table with a cup of tea talking to a spirit. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's summoning of, of, of entities to, to talk to and they, they have connections to the other world and can to kind of tell you your your future, your past, your present, paths that you may or may not want to go down. Um, so you can bring this in as to, in your games as, who who are you summoning? What creature, what entity are you summoning? Is it one of your ancestors? So in something like Vampire, are you going to try and summon some of those vampires from hundreds of years ago that may have fought in in wars and were before my mind's gone blank what happened in prague what was the thing that happened in prague uh, um not familiar in the context of prague i'm not sure i mean we have like you know the fall of london we've got uh the craziness in berlin uh that happened in uh, v5 Oh, okay. if we're going to stick in very far, yeah. So if you if you just go like, ah, oh, my brain is just kind of completely melted on ideas now. Um, but if you're a vampire, you can go back and you can summon maybe um, old vampires who who have died, or you you can do to some extent. You maybe want to wake them from torpor. That could be considered a, a form of necromancy, where they have because they're such. Um, low generation vampires they've been around for so long that they actually have this connection you can kind of talk to them and go well they did this so we might be able to do this um obviously you've got any connection to chronicles of darkness um any of those games wrath you can bring it into as to to bring the spirits across between the between the realms um 40k um wrath and glory age of sigma talking to the gods um so necromancy the entities that you speak to could be you are summoning the gods do you want to summon nagash is that a really wise idea um and things like that so it's, it's kind of like summoning entities to, to have a bit of a chat to uh, i don't want to go into too much detail because i go into quite a lot of detail in the book on it so. 
understood, yeah. But just something to bring up. That was uh, definitely interesting. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting thing when you realize that it's not just summoning the dead. Uh, you can have a lot more fun with it when you're thinking about other entities that you want to summon. Cthulhu. You could summon Cthulhu. Because that's always a fun thing to do. <laughs> Um, we've got two more things um, that I kind of one I'll just say very very quickly and then the other thing is kind of like the overall idea of what the book is showing so um, in D&D specifically I know that when you do something like scrying as, as a divination technique it is pretty much spying um, my concept is scrying is not spying um, it's it's looking through things, through things like mirrors and, and shining surfaces or pools of water and and seeing the pathways and the futures through that or, or actually spying on people yes, that is a part of it, but that's not the whole part of it, you use the ideas of scrying, looking through these mirrored surfaces, of whatever the mirrored surface is, and seeing the futures evolve through that, maybe it's a TV maybe you're looking through a TV um on that but the overall kind of theme that kind of ties the entire book together is that patterns you can use any form of pattern as divination so the way the runes fall the what the actual patterns of, of um, cracks in a rock how birds fly the way that the entrails fall out of an animal divination is about reading patterns and if you can think of a pattern in the world that you're playing in, you can definitely bring out some form of divination from it. I think that's kind of like the key, the key message, I think. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's all we've got for uh, this episode. Uh, this has, of course, been a secret frequency from Darker Days Radio. Um, you already know where to find us uh, from all the other episodes on our social media. But more importantly, definitely want people to check out An Eye to the Void. Uh, and we're going to put a link in the show notes to that Kickstarter, which is going on right now. This episode's going to get out right after we're done recording. It is. So, just, uh, as, as a bit of self-promotion plug here, it's £5 for a PDF that is probably going to be about 130 pages long so have a punt yeah that's good value yep we also do physical copies as well but they're more expensive if you if you just want to kind of <laughs> jump in and see what, what it's about five pound we also have a um a free chapter the casting and runes chapter is currently as a preview up on drive through rpg for free so you can kind of see what we're doing with it there oh great i'll put the link to that in the uh, show notes as well all right awesome david thank you so much really appreciate you being here on the show as usual no and uh, thank you to all the listeners and until our next secret frequency good night good luck and stay safe out there